G'day mate, 40 here. I trust you had an amazing Thanksgiving. That's such a, an American expression. Right? I, I notice Americans using that as a, a form of, of greeting, like the first, first sentence in an email. I trust you had an amazing Thanksgiving. And it just... Just rings so it falls to anyone who's not American. Like, is there any other culture where that would be considered a normal way of beginning an email? Like, I trust you had like an amazing Christmas. I trust you had an amazing Ramadan. I trust you had an amazing Yom Kippur. I mean, from an Australian or British or Irish. French or German perspective. Like, that's just kind of unfathomable to, to be in an email. First, you had an amazing Thanksgiving. Like, how many amazing experiences do we tend to have? Why am I running? I wanted to catch the light. So, I crossed six lanes of traffic. Abiding by the law, I got to uh, cross six lanes of traffic when there was a walk signal. I find it so much more joyful and pleasant and safe an experience to cross six lanes of traffic when it is illicit to do so than when it is illicit to do so. So people close to me on that very street, you know, they got pranged. And they're simply just trying to drive across six lanes of traffic. So far more pedestrians get killed in Los Angeles than people in cars. So even when crossing many lanes of traffic and it's licit, you still have to keep a, an eye out for cars that might turn into you. But uh, how would you react if you got a text message? an email or a letter so that I trust you had an amazing holiday this seems to put a lot of pressure on I mean how many of your holidays have been amazing I'd say probably maybe 1% of mine 2% of my holidays have been amazing but uh I mean, my Thanksgiving, uh, I spent it alone, tried to go to the sports bar, but it was closed. And I had a perfectly pleasant day. I was alone, but not lonely. I got to do some reading and catch up on some exercises and some writing. I might have done a live stream and I watched some football. A very pleasant day, but certainly far from amazing. So now, in retrospect, when someone says to me, I trust you had an amazing Thanksgiving, it uh, makes me feel a little inadequate. Because however pleasant and productive my Thanksgiving was, it was certainly far short of amazing. That's the uh, challenging thing about being single in your second half of life, is that... uh, you can you can keep yourself busy you know, on work days, but on holidays and holy days, 
like it just becomes painfully apparent that you're that you're single right particularly orthodox judaism where there are all sorts of restrictions on what you can do on holy days uh, your ability to run from yourself is limited you know, certainly one day a week on the sabbath and then sometimes for three straight days on holy days you've got uh, say two days of rosh hashanah and then that leads into the sabbath you've got three days of uh, yom tov of restrictions and so your ability to distract yourself from what's missing in your life is uh, eliminated and therefore these days can become uh, uh, painful but i trust you had an amazing weekend now i generally like american enthusiasm even as i gently mock it so when i go back to australia right the more stiff upper lip attitude and the more kind of brutal way of communicating and it sometimes feels like going into a blowtorch compared to the gentle positivity of the american or maybe it's somewhat the californian uh, way of, of speaking so if you think i trust you had an amazing holiday is like an appropriate greeting and surely you are American but many Americans find this like uh, positive it generates positivity I do do other people talk about positivity for some reason I think this is a particularly American uh, expression and way of thinking like Americans tend to be much more optimistic and uh, any other people of which I'm aware like what other people are as consistently optimistic as Americans like which other people put as much emphasis and regards so positively the, the idea and the ethos of positivity but I like it like I like it when people at checkout registers to have a nice day I mean I guess I also enjoyed mocking it a little bit but it's nice now Americans are much more naked in their emotions I think than uh, Australians or, or the English so I particularly like American enthusiasm when it's genuine as opposed to scripted as opposed to an expected social performance of positivity. I heard this uh, one American call into Dennis Prager's show. She talked about living in Australia. She went to the Sydney Opera House. And after a performance, she, she got up and gave a standing ovation. And she was the only person in the audience who was standing and applauding. So standing and applauding, it's not a typical... Australian response and less it is to supreme acts of uh, athletic prowess uh, we, we, we Australians might be even more sports mad than Americans certainly I think gamble more per capita in Australia than, than any other nation but uh, the English and the Australians are much more restrained in their emotional displays certainly compared to northern Europeans Americans are more restrained uh, are more 
the body and, and their displays of emotion. I think even compared to Central European, Southern, uh, certainly more than Eastern Europeans. Now, are Americans more emotionally expressive than Southern Europeans? I believe that is a question mark. They're certainly not as emotionally expressive and emotionally intense as Middle Eastern people. So I was listening to Glenn Greenwald, he was on the Duran podcast recently, and uh, there's an hour-long interview with him about criminalizing dissent, and uh, Glenn Greenwald made a lot of great points. He pointed out after Russia invaded Ukraine that the European Union passed a law making it illegal for social media companies to carry programming like Russia Today, or carry Russian state media it, it like it became criminal an offense to you know hear the other side's point of view now i'm not a quite a free speech absolutist i i have some sympathy for say banning uh, isis and uh, hamas from social media platforms but uh, certainly don't have sympathy for, for banning russia I mean, this, this overwhelming anti-Russian loathing generated out of you know, false attribution of the Donald Trump 2016 victory to Russian intervention is insane. I think Glenn Greenwald's absolutely right how, how insane this is that we would not want to hear you know, from the Russian point of view and even making it criminal. All right. And... And Greenwald makes a good point that in many of these issues, there's just one type of thinking which becomes acceptable in the the mainstream media. So I often deride right-wing conspiracy thinking, but there's as much, perhaps, delusional conspiracy thinking among the establishment, which is why I'm neither an elitist nor a populist. I think sometimes the populists are right and sometimes the elites are right. But for, for three years, the first three years of the Trump administration, the number one news story in America was Russiagate, which uh, in, in effect turned out to be a host. Now, American news media were usually fairly careful in what they reported, but the inference that people took away from what they reported was that you know, Russia essentially rigged the 2016 election and that Donald Trump was a pawn of the Kremlin. And that was, that was false. So all sorts of prestige, all the surprises came from you know, Russiagate reporting, which in effect, if, if not most of the details, turned out to be a hoax. And then the dominant narrative about Russia's invasion of Ukraine Right, any deviation from that, and you're depicted as a stooge of Putin, stooge of Russia. Right, I think obviously that's turning out to be a hoax. And now we're even getting off head saying, yeah, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians may have died in this war, but you know the West is better off because we're weakening Russia supposedly. And uh, on, on Fox, 
news. I noticed since the October 7 attack, I, I noticed not one pro-Palestine uh, guest has appeared, to the, to the best of my, my knowledge that I, I've seen. But obviously, the, the Arabs and the Palestinians, you know, they have a fairly significant claim to the land that is the current state of Israel. I mean, I'm a Zionist. I strongly believe in Jewish claims to the historic land that is now constituted as the Israeli Jewish state. But, you know, I recognize that people of Palestine and the, the Arabs and indigenous people who've lived there for hundreds of years, they have pretty strong claims too. And yet, you know, that, that perspective is completely absent from, from Fox News and and from most leading pundits. You know, I, d I can't recall any of the leading pundits of the past about 40 years who have taken consistently for Palestine. So there is this dangerous level of uh, groupthink in the establishment and the, the mainstream media and uh, dissent on certain issues such as Russiagate and invasion of Ukraine is, is in some places criminalized and just elsewhere disregarded as completely out of bounds. And I don't think narrowing the Overton window is really in our, our best interest. We should want to hear the perspective of Palestinians and the perspective of, of Russians. Right. To the extent that Putin is unpopular in Russia with regard to this war in Ukraine, it's because he has waged it too gently, in too understated a fashion, too ethically, with too many moral compunctions. And it's, it's just stunning that uh, the Ukrainian leader, President Zelensky, and Putin, under the auspices of the then Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, essentially Within a month of Russia's invasion, what, February 4, 2022, come to an accord that would have largely preserved Ukraine by undertaking that Ukraine would not become a member of uh, NATO or of the European Union. And the Biden administration and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, absolutely not. We're going to arm you and support you until you throw out every single Russian soldier on your soil. And so the West intervened and stopped Ukraine from, from reaching an accord which would have been far more in its best interest than what Ukraine faces now, absolute humiliating defeat and loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. And the destruction essentially of Ukraine is a viable state. And the West, particularly the Biden administration, has been willing to fight to the last dead Ukrainian for goal of trying to destroy Russia as a great power, which has not worked out. Uh, restoring an Overton window would have been, you know, a wider Overton window with regard to this topic would have been much more in Ukraine's best interest, Europe's best interest, America's best interest. And then another common talking point you hear the Western establishment is that Ukraine as agency, Ukraine 
gets to decide what it wants to do and the United States and NATO are not going to tell Ukraine what to do, that they're not going to negotiate with, with Russia on Ukraine's behalf, right? And it's all up to Ukraine. But the Western establishment only believes in Ukrainian agency to, to the extent that that aligns precisely with the West agenda of trying to remove Russia as a great power. So as soon as the Ukrainians want to do something that, what, that violates the West agenda of trying to use Ukraine and hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian lives to drain Russia from the ranks of the great powers, right, then the Western establishment has no use for Ukrainian agency. It's only when Ukraine's interests you know, align perfectly with the Western establishment's interests that, uh, that the West then accords great importance to Ukrainian agency. Not remotely true, Luke. Try not to fall for the Duran nonsense. Well, I don't think my opinions on the Ukrainian conflict have changed at all from listening to the Duran. I've only been listening to that podcast for two weeks, but uh, I've been listening to John Mearsheimer for 15 years prior to that. So I, I fail to see how the Biden administration and, and Great Britain putting a stop to Ukraine's peace deal with Russia in the first few weeks of the war, how exactly that was in Ukraine's best interest, the world's best interest, America's best interest. Instead, we've got the most dangerous American foreign policy of any administration stoking war you know, with Russia over Ukraine, stoking war in the Middle East, I mean, can you believe we have military bases in a sovereign country that does not want us, Syria. We have military bases in Syria. That's insane. We have all these military bases in the Middle East which just invite attacks by, quote-unquote, Iranian proxies. And here again, the interests of Iranian proxies are never going to fully align with uh, the interests of Iran. Right? Iran does not 100% control its proxies, right? These proxies have agency. And so when they attack American bases, it may not necessarily be what Iran wants at any particular point in time. We're just massively escalating the chances of some direct confrontation with Iran, which would be absolute disaster, sorry. And the more American military forces we move into the Middle East, the greater the chances of an attack on those forces, which would be disastrous. Remember when Reagan brought in thousands of U.S. Marines as peacekeepers into Lebanon in 1982, and uh, hundreds of them got blown up in, in a car bomb, and then we, we retreated with our tail between our legs. So the Biden administration's foreign policy has dramatically increased the chances of our getting into an unnecessary war. Yeah with Russia, with Iran, and with China. Right, so the U.S. is strategically at a, quite a weak position when it comes to defending Taiwan vis-a-vis China for approximately the next 10 years. And uh, Taiwan seems quite reluctant to make substantial steps 
in its own defense. So the U.S. is risking the loss of tens of thousands of American lives, like the destruction of much of the American Navy, many American bases, the loss of several you know, U.S. aircraft carriers, still may not be able to defend Taiwan. And Taiwan yet to show that it's particularly interested in defending itself. Like Taiwan says some of the right things, but its own actions are absolutely pathetic. So we are risking a great deal for, for good strategic reasons. Right? There's a very good strategic argument for America defending Taiwan, but to needlessly provoke China it seems to me a strategic uh, catastrophe. So we provoked Russia by providing Ukraine with deadly arms. That was the first time President Trump got indicted because of his reluctance, because of his unwillingness to transfer deadly arms to Ukraine. And that's, that was the reason for the 2019-2020 for the indictment of, of Trump. But uh, by arming Ukraine, you then incentivize Russia to go to war to destroy it. And Biden administration is very open about wanting to send $10 billion worth of arms to Taiwan, which you know, may very well incentivize China to go to war to retake Taiwan sooner rather than later. Mearsheimer is a joke too. Well, you need to provide some evidence. You can't show any evidence. This is a very respected international relations theorist who is the subject of much obloquy, but uh, not much uh, substantial fact-checking. So, for example, people you know, mock Mearsheimer for consistently saying over the past... Uh, about 10 years that uh, Putin has no plans to conquer Ukraine. Well, he doesn't. He only invaded with at most 190,000 soldiers. He is not intent on conquering all of Ukraine. Right now, he seems intent on annexing parts of Ukraine that are dominantly pro-Russian in sentiment and demographics. So somehow it's a zinger that Mishima said Putin wasn't interested in conquering Ukraine and Russia invades Ukraine, but not every invasion is an attempt to conquer an entire nation. Luke Ford has an Australian accent, very much thinks like an American. Yeah, well, I've lived here for 45 years. Uh, Crash, I hope you had an amazing weekend, bro.